Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians. We've been spending enough time in 1 Corinthians 12 that we should hopefully be thinking about it more, understanding it more. This series over the gifts and the body, we're 30 lessons into this. Now, we, we still have the rest of 12, chapter 13, and 14 to go, and then we're going to cover Ephesians 5 before we're finished. So just to let you know why this is such a big deal. Uh, I hope that we've spent enough time pursuing this uh, that we would recognize the Bible has really actually got a lot to say about this. It's only really stated in four passages. But as far as the vitality of the church, the vitality of the church is the Holy Spirit. Please understand this. So when we talk about spiritual gifts being done in a spiritual way by the power of the Spirit manifesting Himself in the believers for the edification of one another, to me that's a really big deal. I don't know about you, but Sourpuss Church never made it very far. This idea of being all stuck up, this idea of being all high and dry, this idea you better do things properly perfect the right way or else somebody's going to blow a gasket, forget all that mess. That is not true worship of, the, of, of God. And it's not of the Spirit. That's just people trying to control one another. There's not been anything of value that ever comes from that. So let's forsake any, any type of, of uh, mindset that would say, well, it's got to be my way, it's got to be my way. This is God's church, it's done God's way. It's important for us to understand that spiritual gifts have to be exercised spiritually. And I know I say that over and over and over, but it's vitally important for us to understand. I want to start again at verse 4. We're going to read through to 11 just to get it and have our minds back where we are. Because remember, what he's talking about here is not necessarily about, do you have this gift? Do you have this gift? Do you have this gift? That's what we're seeking to discover. But Paul's greater purpose around this is much bigger. Look what he says starting in verse 4. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. In fact, let's do this. This is fun. I like it whenever congregations respond. I really do. So far, you guys aren't doing that very well. So let's get motivated this morning, okay? See, you're going to need coffee eventually. All of you are going to become coffee drinkers, even Zach. Here we go. Every time the word Spirit comes up, I want you to say it. Here we go. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. And are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the for the common good. For to one is given the word of knowledge through the and to another the word of knowledge according to the same. And to another faith by the same. And to another gift of healing by the one. And to another the effecting of miracles. And to another prophecy. And to another the distinguishing of spirits. And Well, it's lowercase. You could go either way. We're not going to frown on you. Okay. And to another various kinds of tongues. And to another interpretations of tongues. But one and the same works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So spiritual gifts are the Spirit of God in us, revealing himself for the betterment of one another, and doing it in a specified way as only the Holy Spirit has determined. This is essentially what verses 7 and 11 are saying to us. Now, has everybody noticed between verses 8, 9, and 10, everybody see the word another? 
another, another. Everybody see that? Isn't that interesting that it tells us another, another, another? You know, one has the gift of wisdom. Another, the word of knowledge. And then you've got, go down a little bit, another, faith. Another, you know what that tells me? It tells me that the playing field is equal. You may have a different gift, but just because you have a particular gift or a couple of particular gifts, it doesn't put you on a higher plane than anyone else. Your spirituality is not measured by the type of gift that you have. It is measured by your submission to the Lord and desiring Him to work that gift through you. That's different. That's very different. And if we want anything, we want saints that are maturing, that are living in submission, humility, saying, God, live this through me. It's not about me manipulating it and seeing how I can do it. One of the most dangerous things is that when we discover our spiritual gifts, we think that somehow we can control it, we can mess with it, we can manipulate it, we can do it, and it's going to finally get us what we've been longing to see in the church happen all this time. You need to go run a company because you're an egomaniac. You're a narcissist. That's not the church. You have to go somewhere else. The church is to be led the Spirit's way. Now, does that mean that we all kind of roll our eyes in the back of our head? Everybody's in the lotus pose. We're all high on oxygen. No, that's not what that means. But what it is, is recognizing that every situation that we come upon, every opportunity for ministry, every interaction with one another, thy will, not my will, be done. If that's the attitude that we come to, guess what? Your spiritual gift just happens. You don't have to make it happen. You just start ministering in the way that God geared you to minister. Now, if you notice, we've covered verse 8. We've covered the word of wisdom. We've covered the word of knowledge. And today we're going to be dealing with the idea of faith. Now, I'm not going to take it for granted that even though we've been handing these out for quite a while, that everybody has one of these sheets. So if you need one of these sheets, please let me know. And I can tell that Zach is gearing up and ready to deliver it to you personally with a smile. Anybody? Anybody need these? Fantastic. There we go. And if you need the statement sheet for these gifts, uh, it was located on the website. In fact, Mitch, when you get a chance, can you let me know where that's at? Do you remember which one we did there before we started it? Mitch can do some research. Mitch is a valuable guy to have back there. Mitch and PJ and Kurt back there running things, thank you for what you do. It's awesome. Yeah, definitely. If you have your sheet right here, I want you to look down through there. And I went ahead and gave you A, even though we haven't covered it. It's preaching or what would be considered prophecy. We have B, exhortation, C, teaching, D, wisdom, E, knowledge, F is faith. You want to write in faith right there. Today we're going to be dealing with the gift of faith. The first thing that we want to do is get a definition of faith. And I've been really blown away over the years when I do a research uh, project or something that I've got to take care of to find this. How many people dismiss this idea that the Bible has one distinct definition of faith? We're not there yet, PJ. Let's go to Hebrews 11, 1 first. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Hebrews 11, 1 gives us a very plain biblical definition for what faith is. And it's important that we recognize what this is because... This guards us from 
stuffing faith with works, but on the other end, it guards us from what would commonly be called easy believism, or the idea that you've just ascribed to a fact. It's something different than that. It's something more than that. The pendulum actually hangs right in the middle, not to the extreme. So Hebrews 11.1. Now watch this. Now faith is, pause. Does this sound like a definition to you? Okay. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Now you might have a slightly different definition. But here's how we can understand this. If you notice, you might look at some of your marginal notes. Now, faith is the assurance, the substance. The word there actually in Greek is hypostasis, And it's the idea of the title deed. It's like if you were buying property and you signed off on this deed and this deed is now yours and you have a stake and a claim to it. The assurance of things hoped for. In other words, you have a rightful ownership of What's out ahead? Does everybody see that? So it's something that is substantive and you may not have it yet. Raise your hand if you were here when Jesus died on the cross. How do you know he did? Faith, yes. The Bible. And so the question really boils down to an idea of, is the word of God telling me the truth or is the word of God lying? It all comes down to whether or not this has got errors Or if it's actually telling us the truth and we're just having a difficult time dealing with it sometimes because of how true it is. That's really where the variable is. Faith rests upon the facts of which God has revealed. Whether that be in his revelation of what he's created or whether that be in the revelation of giving us the word of God, here is how we know. This is why I believe what I believe. Now, how many of us have been in that situation where your faith has been characterized as, well, you just walk to the edge of the stairs and you've got this blindfold on for some reason and you're looking to step forward and when you do, it's going to be like Indiana Jones in the last crusade. You stepped on that part that you couldn't have seen it normally, right? And somehow that's going to hold you. That's considered faith. Don't ever buy into that argument. That is not what faith is. Faith is founded upon a foundation, or it's not faith, it's flighty. It's superstition. It has no merit, it has no clout, it's wishful thinking. That is not what faith is. Faith has a certain foundation. So notice, it's the assurance or the substance of things that are hoped for it's having ownership on future things but look what it says and this isn't a second part of the definition he's reiterating the same idea it says it's the conviction some of you have proof or evidence the conviction of things not seen think about it if you're a believer in jesus christ you have trusted him with forever forever i mean we're sitting here banking right now i am not going to roast in the lake of fire because i have believed in jesus christ what has he done well he's died on the cross he's raised from the grave that's pretty good stuff okay but he's also made promises forgiveness of sin completely eternal life totally Now, that sounds really good, doesn't it? Anybody seen that yet? 
Yeah, we have a whole chapter in the Bible, Hebrews 11, that talk about people who lived in the anticipation of their life because they had a confident conviction that what God had spoken to them was the absolute truth. Here's what it boils down to. Is God a liar? See, now we perk up. No, God's not a liar. So if he's told us the truth about Genesis things, which a lot of people still don't seem to be able to grasp, and if he's told us the truth about our sin condition, which is so dead on, he hit the nail right on the head as far as that, and then some. But he also gives us a solution out of it. So he's telling us the truth all the way across the board. The question is, is are we confident or are we convinced? Do we have a conviction that it's true? That's what faith is. Now, what we don't want to do is we don't want to make the mistake of saying, well, in 1 Corinthians 12, the gift of faith that they're talking about is saving faith. It's not, okay? One big misnomer that seems to be going on in churches everywhere and in Bible teaching everywhere is the idea that the faith to believe in Jesus is a different type of faith. It is not. Faith is a response. It's a complete response. Let me see here. Give me something. I have a pumpkin in my hand. Okay? I have a pumpkin in my hand. Art, you got good hands? Okay? Zach, here we go. You ready? I'll tell you how simple it is. In order to be saved, you must believe that Jesus Christ has died for your sins and risen from the grave. Do you believe this? Now, here's a question. Did he really do a work or did he do a response? Notice all the work is on Christ and what he did on the cross. All that happened when I sent that message out was the response of, you either believe it or you don't. You're either convinced it's true or you're not. You either have a conviction or you don't. April 9th, evangelism training, 10 to 12. Please be here. We have child care available. Sign up is out there. Faith is a response to what you've heard. Is it true or is it not? In fact, the Bible tells us that faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ in particular. But this isn't the same faith that is being talked about by Paul. Now, is the faith any different? Well, no. Faith is still trusting what God has said. But is the object different? When you're believing for salvation, notice that you're believing in Christ and His work, His person and His work. But when we talk about the gift of faith, we're not talking about a higher quality of faith. We're not talking about being in a situation where it's like, well, I've got that certain kind of faith around here somewhere. Some people have talked about, well, you have a real faith, but your faith is kind of fake. I don't think it's that at all. I think it's a situation where we either believe what God has said or we don't believe what God has said. Now, am I saying that there are some people in the church who believe more of what God has said than others? Yes, there just are. And guess what? That's not because there's anything in particular about them as a person apart from what God has done in gifting them with that ability by the Holy Spirit. So this is why another, 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 and the various gifts that go with it doesn't make one on a greater playing field. And here's what we do. Here's the mistake we make, church. 
We see somebody who's exercising great faith and we feel inferior because our faith is not great. The reason why God has given people of a greater faith in the body is to encourage greater faith in the body. It's to move us all in the direction that they're already paving for us. So let's not get discouraged when some people are exercising a greater faith. Is Well, gosh, I should believe, be believing like that. Well, maybe they are sharing that with you to edify your belief in the direction that it needs to go. See, the beautiful thing about the church is the inner workings. The manifestation of the Spirit happening is to edify the body so that it builds itself up in love. So where is that encouragement for greater faith going to come from? The Word of God through people manifesting the Spirit of God to build up the body. Everybody see how that works? Okay. All five of you are amazing. Here we go. Let's look at some, some definitions that I've found of this type of faith I think is good. F.F. Bruce, really good commentary writer. A special endowment of faith for a special service. Another one that I found, a Greek guy, Vincent, he said, it is wonder-working faith. It is faith that is able to be monumentous in certain situations. Now, in each one of your bulletins, you will have, again, one of those half sheets that we've got from Earl Rodmacher's study of this. And I ask you to take a moment and pull that out. If you don't happen to have it with you, that's fine. You'll see it up on the screen. You can get an extra one that's back there. But the spiritual gift of faith, it is the God-given ability to see through mountainous problems to the ultimate resource with the vision that it is timely to rely absolutely on both God's ability and willingness to perform in this particular matter. Now, I think that is a really, really good way to encapsulate it. Because here's what happens. Our life is going along just fine. Something big pops up and we scramble like cockroaches when the lights come on. And for some reason, we can't maintain, stand firm, call a spiritual timeout and get our wits about us in order to move forward. And these are the people that when those events come about, they are trying to still the ship. They're trying to speak calm into the situation. Now, I've been trying desperately not to get back into the Old Testament with a lot of these things because that's a completely different situation. Israel's a completely different group of people. They did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit back there. But when I think about things like Joshua and Caleb telling the people, don't rebel against God. He's already spoken. Believe him. Let's go forward. What else do you need but his word? That gives a really good evidence of that type of conviction and thinking about if God has said it, it's done. Now, what are the qualities of this person? Now, I sometimes tell you as we go through this, think about whether or not this is you. I'm going to ask you to also do this. Think about if this is other people that you know in the body of Christ. One of the greatest ways that people will come upon their spiritual gifts sometimes is when other people recognize that gift in them. They may not recognize it for themselves because they're just living life from their perspective and desiring to serve the Lord faithfully. That's what they're seeking to do. They need somebody that comes along and go, wow, from everything I can see, you have the spiritual gift of faith. Has anybody ever had somebody come up and tell them what spiritual gift they have? I did that last week. Somebody said, no, I don't have that gift. I said, you're really not helping my case here. You do. 
whatever. Moving on. You're a bookworm. You have the gift of knowledge. All right. Here it is. Can quickly change from one task to another. They are confident. Now, see, this is what freaks people, other people in the church out. They believe God when he says it, and they're confident about it. And that makes other people get spooky. They get very uncomfortable with that. They're persuasive in getting others to join in on a project. They challenge people to assume greater responsibilities to accomplish what needs to be done. They set a pace for others. They're determined in spite of difficulties when working on a project. They make decisions quickly and they act quickly. There's nothing wrong with that if they're believing what God has said. Here's the reason why. It's not that they're not people of prayer, but when they're settled on, here's what God has said, you don't need to pray about it anymore. Would you agree with that? Okay. Just making sure. I mean, that, that's, that's like a, that seems like a given for me. I mean, I don't, know, I don't know. How about this? Willing to tackle the seemingly impossible. Ah. See, this is where the gift of faith gets real scary. Hey, guys, this, this, this. And all the church goes, there's no way. Right? But the problem we have is the person that has the gift of faith has said something. And we're going, I really wish they wouldn't have said anything. Because now we're faced with a decision. We either got to trust God or do it on our own or not obey or, oh, what in the world? That's exactly where God wants His church. In a tedious position to make a choice. To make a choice and say, yes, I will trust what you have said. And people need to spearhead the way for that. Those are the ones with the gift of faith. They have a strong rest in God. And they are a leader. And you can't stop them. They are, in fact, a leader. Now, one of the difficulties we have here is when we look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 12, it just says, gift of faith. That's all it is. That's all we have here. It's a gift of faith. How do we deal with that? Thankfully, if we take context into consideration, we have another mention of it, and I want us to turn there. 1 Corinthians 13. Everybody knows this one, right? The love chapter? The love chapter. Anybody remember the love boat? Okay, just making sure. This is the love chapter. I'm just trying to keep you guys awake, man. You guys look sleepy to me. All right, moving on. Chapter 13, verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge. Now watch this. And if I have all, what's it say? Faith. Now here it is. You've got a clarification here. What does that look like? If he's talking about spiritual gifts here, the mysteries part, we don't know, but he's kind of throwing this out to make his point about love has got to be the present attitude or it's all for nothing, okay? But notice how he brings up prophecy. He brings up knowledge. He's bringing up the gift of faith that we saw back in verse 9 of chapter 12. And look what he says. So as to do what? Remove mountains. You think Paul just came up with this teaching? Where have we heard the idea of faith moving mountains before? Jesus taught it. Jesus taught this exact same thing in his earthly ministry. You have the faith of a mustard seed. Now here's the great thing I love about this. 
Thank the Lord that the Holy Spirit gave us some sort of connection. Because I'll be honest with you. There's not much else about the gift of faith going on in the New Testament church time. There's a lot of things to believe in. There's a lot of truths that we need to uphold. But as far as someone exercising that out in a profound and explosive way, we don't necessarily see that. So, take your Bibles with me. Let's turn back and let's see what Jesus had going on with some of this. Matthew chapter 17. We want to look at verse 14, starting there. Matthew 17, starting in verse 14. And I'm thankful because 14 picks up. We don't need to give too much background on this. We can watch what happens. When they came to the crowd... A man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill. Now, immediately all the parents are like, dude, I can relate. You're preaching. Yes. But that's not what it means. Probably a better understanding of this is they were suffering from epileptic seizures. And some of your translations actually say he has seizures or something like that. Some translations will actually say he's moonstruck, and that sounds kind of strange to us, like he's got some kind of voodoo talisman over him or something weird like that. That's not what the case is. There's a legitimate problem and illness here. And it gives us some understanding. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. Is that a problem? I was like, well, the disciples aren't Jesus. They shouldn't have been able to cure him. Wait for a second. How does Jesus respond? Verse 17. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation. Who's he talking to? The guy that has the problem with the boy having seizures? Who's he talking to? But he's a loving God. (laughs) Thank you, Jay. This word unbelieving is actually the Greek word pistis with the negation in front of it. Not believing. You don't believe. In other words, the problem with the situation as to why the apostles couldn't take care of casting out this demon who was causing these problems in these guys' life is unbelief. That's the problem. Now notice he's also called perverted. You unbelieving and perverted. The idea is you are crooked or it's distorted. You've got something in your thinking that is not lining up to be a harmonious and straight path here. You were conflicted for some reason, not believing that it could happen. Now, why is this important? If you know about the book of Matthew, and does everybody remember the teaching that Jesus gave where he said, it said that he went out and he saw the crowds, and he was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd? And he told his disciples, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers out into the harvest. Everybody remember that? Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 39 is where that happens. And I love it. Jesus is so darn quirky. I love it. Because in Matthew 10, it says, and he gathered his disciples together and he commissioned them to go out to these lost sheep. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll send people out. Good job. That's you guys. But here's what's crazy. He sent them out and he gave them authority to cast out demons, to heal sickness, and to raise the dead. 
That's Matthew 10. Where are we at here? Matthew 17. Do they not already have a previous experience of being given authority in order to do this? They do. This is what made their unbelief so terrible in Jesus' eyes. You guys have been here. You guys have done this. You guys traveled around an entire countryside. And we're casting this stuff out. And now you're coming to this one issue and you're not believing because of the insurmountable problem in front of you? That doesn't make sense. And we look at it from our perspective and we go, yeah, it totally doesn't make sense. How in the world could they do that if they already had this in the past? And we begin to judge them for that. Could that be us? I think that it can. Look what it says here. He says, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. Now that's an interesting point. Notice that Jesus doesn't give a parable, some strange answer out in the middle of nowhere. He lets them know, your faith is small. And watch what he does here. For truly I say to you, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, pause, how big is a mustard seed? Yeah, already did this, right? Teeny, weeny, tiny, itty bitty. You know what that tells you? If Jesus said the littleness of your faith, and then he says, but if you would only have faith the size of a mustard seed, the smallest seed going on here that I'm talking about, something that you can easily relate to, guess what you could do? He tells them. If you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing, nothing will be impossible for you. Now, is he talking about moving literal mountains? No, he's using a a device here called hyperbole. And he's speaking in such extreme situations where the point should be very obvious. Don't you realize that if you just trust what the Lord has told you this much, the unthinkable could happen. God will begin doing the impossible through you. This is why a church needs people with the gift of faith. Because we are really satisfied with less than mustard seed sizes. The people with the gift of faith won't let the church get comfortable and stand still. They are the kind little service-oriented provokers. You say, man, that guy's a real thorn in my side, acting all holy, high and mighty and all this stuff. Or it might be the situation they got to get to faith and you're out of alignment with that. My greatest concern is we got more people in the church named faith than we have people showing faith. That's no slight against you. I'm thankful for you. But, I mean, come on. Our churches today got a lot of people named faith, but are we seeing faith? Are we seeing the gift of faith? Are we seeing the person that comes to this insurmountable odds and says, God can do it. God can take care of it. 
The Lord is faithful. See, these are all the things when we're in that tension, we're going, Stop telling me God is able. Because we're freaking out. And the person of faith is there to say, get your mind right. Get back on his path. Follow him. We end up having to follow the people of faith because they are actually believing and seeking to move forward when we're like, no, until I can control this situation, it's got to stand still. Too many churches stand still. And it's not pleasing to God. Especially when he's called for faith to be exercised. And we're like, yeah, somebody else will do that. This might be you. This might be you. Moving mountains. Important. How about the next one? Let me show you this one too. Because this kind of goes with it. Mark 11. Turn over to the Gospel of Mark. It's to the right. Mark 11. In this passage of Mark 11, Jesus visits Jerusalem three times. The second time he goes, he ends up overturning the tables in the temple because they pretty much turned it into a money-making scheme. And he's not happy with it. It's supposed to be a house of prayer, not a place for people to line their pocketbooks. And, if you, and, he, and what happens is, is before he goes, he pronounces a curse on a fig tree. Now let me give you a little bit of background about this real quick, okay? In fact, let me see where it says it, because I don't think maybe we have it up there. Yeah, do me a favor, look at verses 12 and 13. It's not up on the screen, but look at it real quick, just so you understand what's going on. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, pay attention to that, in leaf. Okay, a fig tree in leaf. He went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. Now, here's a reason why he did this, because they're getting ready to tell you something. You might think it's a contradiction, okay? But the time that they're moving along here is about late March. So between late March uh, and the middle of April was when this was going on. You would have this situation where leaves would start to come out on the fig trees. And when they begin to produce that, you would know that they were going to have the first little droplings, or whatever they're called, of something that would eventually become big figs okay and those figs would usually come to to ripen around june something like that so you'd have these little beginning tracings of what was going to happen so when jesus goes up to the fig uh, to the fig tree <coughs> it says here if he'd find anything on it and when he came to it he found nothing but leaves in other words it had the appearance that some beginning fruit should be there but there was no fruit at all when there should have been and it says for it was not me, the season for figs, which would have been June when they're ripened out. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. So they come into Jerusalem. He turns over the tables and go down to verse 20. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. So Jesus doesn't find any beginning fruit when they've got leaves on this fig tree and he curses it. And it begins to rot from the root up. In other words, the place where it's planted in the source of nourishment is rotting it out and it's eventually going to come up and the whole thing is going to die. This fig tree is a model or a symbol of Israel at this time. They had all the linkings, the lookings of what it was to receive their king 
So he could set up this kingdom in his first coming. But when you go in to examine their worship closer, you end up finding out that there is nothing of substance there whatsoever. It's empty. And because it's empty, Christ curses it. Now Peter is putting all this together in his mind. And he says here, it was withered from the roots up, verse 21, being reminded... Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. And you say, what? We're talking about fig trees withering and crazy stuff like that. And your response is have faith in God. How in the world does that make sense? Watch what he says. Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea. And does not, what's it say, church? Doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. If Peter knows that the fig tree symbolizes Israel, And he thinks back to all these promises that have been given. Jesus' response of have faith in God makes sense. Is God going to redeem Israel one day? Yeah. Is there a remnant of believing Israel right now? Yes, there is. It's all exactly according to what His Word is plainly said. But at that moment, Peter loses sight of that. Oh my gosh, the thing is dying. What in the world? Stop. Believe God. What has God already said? What has God already said about this situation? Believe in Him. Pay attention to what He's doing now. Churches will come and go. Nations will come and go. God does not change. Believe in Him. If you do that, look what it says here. I say to you, whoever says of this mountain, be taken up and cast in the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what He says is going to happen, it will be granted. The question is, is do you believe what God has said about it? This is the gift of faith, people. The gift of faith people believe God so much that everybody else gets uncomfortable. And the reason is is because it challenges us to change. To change. It's calling us to greater faith and greater trust. God has chosen to do that with His Word through people in the church. Now, what would be the enemies of faith in this? Go back to Matthew, please. And I want to show you one instance. You can write down Matthew 8, 24 through 26 if you want, but I want to take you to Matthew 6. Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 28 through 30. In fact, this whole passage is just incredible and it all deals with the problem of not believing God. 28. And why are you worried about clothing? The key word there is what? It's not clothing. Worry. Worry. What is one of the biggest enemies of faith? Worry. Freaking out about everything. Stuff that's not even real. Stuff that might not even happen. Or we'll hearken it back to the beginning of the year. Getting anxious about things. Letting fear control decisions. Fear 
overshadows faith. We have not been given a spirit of fear. Look what he says. Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. Not even Solomon was as pretty as flowers. And God takes care of flowers. So put two and two together, right? Look what it says, verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow's thrown into the furnace, he will not much more clothe you. You of what? Little faith. Why was the faith little in this situation? Worry. Fear. The other one I gave you, Matthew 8. They're on the boat. Everybody knows this one, right? Jesus is tired. He goes down underneath, camps out. He's asleep. All of a sudden, things start to get real rocky. Oh, Jesus is really uncomfortable. Here come the storms. You know, the storms. Every contemporary Christian song you hear talks about those storms. That's how we know that, right? Nobody thinks that's funny? I think that's hilarious. Moving on. The storms. And they say, we're going to die. Save us. And he comes up and he says, why are you doubting? You of little faith. Would we make that mistake? Son of God's in the boat with us. And we're freaking out about the storm around us. Everybody notice that that's a truth struggle that doesn't need to happen. And yet, how often in our lives does it creep up and try to drag us down? And we forget about the Word of God. Gift of faith, people. This is why you are so important. To rise up in moments like that and to come alongside discouraged people. And as much as they might not want to hear it at that moment, put your arm around them and point the direction of the Word of God and go watch what our Lord is going to do. Don't lose sight. Just because it's like this now, don't lose sight of what's going on out ahead. Gift of faith, people. Help carry that mantle. I'm concerned. Because if we want to talk about how important it is to have all of the gifts working together to make a complete body of Christ so that we can function well, so that we can run this race in this life with endurance, so we can stand before the Lord when it's all done. And He will actually look at Grace Bible Church as a body and say, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your Master. I want to hear that. But if the gift of faith is not exercised, it is out of our reach. The gift of faith is necessary. Vital to cause us to do what we don't think we can do. When we don't think we can do those things, that's our will. When we're called to do things that, oh, there's no way, that's God's will. And He is putting a choice before us at that moment. The people with the gift of faith lead that charge. My concern is that when somebody speaks up with the gift of faith, they might be belittled or dismissed or set to the side. When Caleb and Joshua said, we can do it, guys. God's already said it. God's already given it to us. He's already paved the road. Why aren't we driving down it? And what did the other ten do? Shut up or we'll kill you. Can you imagine thinking that in your heart against your brothers and sisters because they're trying to lead you to greater depths of obedience to the Lord? 
Don't think it's beyond our hearts. It's not. Our hearts are desperately wicked apart from the Holy Spirit. Good grief, we need that help. But notice that God wants to lead us, lead us into greater areas, greener pastures, monumentous ministries. If we don't believe, we won't go there. And we will miss that blessing. Here's a good quote I found from Albert Barnes. I think this is from the late 1800s. If you wouldn't mind, bring that up, PJ. Good quote. Many of the most useful men and women in the church are distinguished mainly for their simple confidence in the promises of God and often accomplish more by prayer and by their faith in God than others do who are distinguished for their wisdom and learning. Go ahead and go to the next one. Humble piety and reliance in the divine promises and that measure of ardor, fearlessness, and zeal which result from such confidence that belief that all obstacles must be and will be overcome that oppose the gospel and that God will secure the advancement of His cause will often do infinitely more in the promotion of His kingdom than the most splendid endowments of learning and talent. In other words, the gift of faith is so desperately needed in the church to push us past the point of, well, I'm just being rational. Well, I'm just being logical. Well, I'm just trying to be good at this. Well, I'm just trying to take care of me and my house kind of thing. Self-preservation has never been the way of faith. It wasn't for our Savior. It's not for us. Let me finish with this. If you turn over to Matthew 8, Jesus has just gotten done with the Sermon on the Mount. He cleanses a leper. And he moves on to Capernaum, which is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, right on the shore. And in verse 5, this takes place. And this is interesting. And I'm going to go ahead and point out to you. What happens here happens through a person who's not a believer in Jesus, okay? He's not. But he understands something, which makes me think that he might be. Does that sound like a convincing argument to you? Verse 5. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Wow, that was easy. Jesus, I got a problem. Don't worry, I'm there. Watch where faith comes in. Verse 8, but the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Now remember, he's a centurion, which means he's a Gentile which means he's probably affiliated with the Romans, which means that Jews viewed them as garbage and trash and dirt and junk. So he knows that if Jesus comes into his house, which he was willing to do, Jesus will actually be considered defiled before the eyes of other Jewish people. That's a tarnishment to his ministry. Lord, I'm not even worthy for you to be there. To have you walk into my house, that's so much more beyond what should be happening for me. But look what he says here. He says, I'm not worthy for you to come into my roof, but just say the word. Say the what? There's the place where our problem is. 
You just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now he wants to give you an explanation of why. For I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to this one, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Everybody see the word authority. Word, authority. Word, Jesus, you don't need to come to my house. If this is a situation of sickness, you're God over these things. You simply speak the word of healing and it doesn't matter where you are in the vicinity because you have the authority over the situation. Healing happens. That's the power of the Lord. Now here's what I think is incredible. Does God know everything? Yes. Is Jesus God? Pause for a second. This is one of my most favorite parts in all of Scripture. Look what he says. Now when Jesus heard this, he what? Jesus is blown away, even though he knows all things, at a Gentile who does not have a previous rich history of Old Testament upbringing. And he simply looks at Jesus and says, you have all authority, speak the word, it's done. That's enough. Would that be your response? Is that the way that you would approach this situation? Do we recognize that if God has said it, and forgive me because this is going to sound dumb, but if God has said it, that it's true. True. Real. Actual. Factual. Without a shadow of a doubt. With no need for argument. With no, mm, uh, mm, uh, mm, uh, that we often want to do. Or, if we're really Christian, well, Lord, let me pray about it first. Or is it something of simply recognizing that when God speaks, it has authority. And regardless of situations, circumstances, family conflicts, how somebody might feel about you bringing that up, it doesn't matter. You position your heart on what God has said. If you find right now in your spirit that you gravitate toward that, you probably have the gift of faith. If you say yes with all of my being, the thing that I sense deepest that I desire for people is for them to trust Him more. I see it. I want them to see it. I've read this. I want them to read it. I want to get this truth in front of them so they would recognize that the scraps we're settling for, we don't need to be there. Take a step up. Lean into him. Jesus marveled. I tell you the truth. I have not found such faith in all of Israel. Jesus is blown away by somebody simply, you say the word, you have the authority. That settles the whole issue. Gift of faith people are important, vital to the church. Let's pray. Father, how important it is to have faith. And not just faith like we would all exercise, but to recognize 
that if you're stirring within our hearts the gift of faith, that we have the gift of faith, and that's for particular people in the church, we understand that. The Lord, they would step, step up and speak those wonderful things into our lives and serve alongside those ministries to encourage them and build them up and invest in them and pour their lives into them. The Father, they would uphold Your Word faithfully. Father, they have an on-fire prayer life. Trusting You for all things. Submitting all things before Your hands. Recognizing Your authority in those situations. Lord, how important it is for the rest of us not to be reserved when those gifts come forward. But to recognize and accept and check it with the Scriptures and see this is how you're putting together the body of Christ. How important it is to recognize when that encouragement comes along. When that reinforcement of what you've already stated is set forward. How important it is that we are encouraged to have great faith by those that you've gifted. Father, please bless our thinking in this. Help us not to just toss it to the wayside like it doesn't matter. Lord, it's weighty and it's worthy because this is the way that you've orchestrated the church. We pray all this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.